Our topic for tonight, Revelation's time no longer from disappointment to divine appointment. Our age is an age of questioning, an age of uncertainty. It seems you can't be sure of anything these days. And if you think you are certain about something, somebody's going to come along and challenge you on that. I remember one time years ago, after I preached a sermon, somebody after the sermon said, Pastor, how do you know for sure that what you're presenting is the truth? I thought, that's a good question. That's a question each of you should be asking. How do you know that what I'm presenting here night by night is the truth? How do you know? You have to test it in God's word. Many people have pulled up the anchor of truth, God's word, and as a result, they're on a shoreless ocean of uncertainty. Headed through life, rushing through life, many of them hardly knowing where they're going. Reminds me, I heard the story of the biologist Thomas Huxley. He was late for a speaking appointment many years ago. He had come in by train to this particular city, and the train had gotten delayed. And so when he arrived, he was late. And so he jumped off the train, he rushed to a taxi, which back in those days was simply a horse-drawn carriage. He jumped in the carriage, he said, top speed, driver, top speed, I'm late. And the driver, he cracked the whip, and they set out through the town at a wild pace. And the frazzled Huxley, he finally sat back in the seat, thinking, I'm finally moving again. And then he started up, he said, wait, driver, do you know where I want to go? The driver said, no, but I'm driving top speed. <laughs> and it seems like many people are going through life that way. They're rushing through life, hardly knowing where they're headed. Are you certain, friend, of where you're headed? Are you certain of your faith? Are you certain of your beliefs? Jesus tells us we can have certainty. In fact, he says in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Truth is absolute. Whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not, truth is absolute. And Jesus tells us we can know the truth. Luke writing to Theophilus, he says in Luke 1, verse 4, that thou mightest know the what? The certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Are you certain of the things wherein you have been instructed? Are you certain of your faith, of your beliefs? We ought to be. I've had people say, Pastor, I don't agree with what you're presenting, but I don't know the Bible like you do. I can't disprove you. Well, we ought to be able to defend our faith from the Bible, shouldn't we? The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready. How often? always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And people today, they want Bible answers. When they challenge you, they want you to be able to defend what you believe by God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I challenge people, study God's word. Base your faith on the Bible. You will find as you study God's word, you have more and more certainty. And one of the things we discover from the word of God, especially the last book of the Bible, is that we can have certainty in these uncertain days. And one of the things we can be certain of in the book of Revelation is the identifying marks of God's true church. We looked at that already in our seminar, Revelation 12. We looked at the true church, the identifying features of her. We found eight identifying marks for God's end-time church from the Bible. Number one, it would be teaching the truth. We could expect that. Number two, it would not appear until after 1798. We got that from Revelation 12. 
And then number three, it would be like the original. The Bible called it the remnant. And so we went back and looked at the original church. We saw the original church was looking for Christ's return, Christ's advent. So God's end time church would be looking for Christ's return, the advent, the appearing. We saw the original church baptized by immersion. So God's last day church would baptize by immersion. The original church kept the Sabbath holy, seventh day of the week. So God's end time church would also keep the Sabbath holy, seventh day of the week. We saw the original church taught that death was like a sleep. God's last day church would teach that death is like a sleep, to be like the original. And we saw number four, God's true church keeps his commandments. How many of them? How many are there in the Ten Commandments? <laughs> there are ten commandments. Virtually every church today thinks you ought to keep nine, but there are ten. Number five, God's church, true church would have the spirit of prophecy. We looked at that. It would be a worldwide church, number six, carrying the gospel to every nation. And then number seven would be carrying the three angels' messages, which is called the everlasting gospel, Revelation 14, to the whole world. And then number eight, it would be teaching people to take care of their health. And we saw there's only one church today that meets all eight of those points, and that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. And as I mentioned when we looked at this earlier, the chaplain today for the United States Senate is a Seventh-day Adventist, very black. Though this is not some cult, otherwise the Senate would not have chosen a Seventh-day Adventist chaplain. Sometimes when I present the Bible identifying marks for God's true church, sometimes people, people take offense. I remember one time I presented the identifying marks of God's true church, and there was this Baptist lady. She came out after the meeting. She was furious. She said, how dare you say the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church? She said, the Baptist church could do just what you've done. They could find all the Bible proof that the Baptist church is the true church. I said, well, sister, why don't you do that? She went to studying. Six months later, she became a Seventh-day Adventist. She was at least honest with herself as she studied God's Word. Well, I guess there is a church that lines up with the Bible. But let's answer this question tonight. Can we be certain that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church? The book of Revelation is given that we might have certainty. In the book of Revelation, we find in Revelation 14 the message of God's true church at end time. In Revelation 12, we find the identifying marks of God's true church at end time. And then in Revelation 10, we see the historical experience of God's true church at end time. We have looked already in our seminar at the message of the true church. Revelation 14, we've studied that. We have considered the identifying marks of God's true church. Revelation 12, we looked at that. So tonight we're going to focus on the historical experience of God's true church. Revelation chapter 10. Turn there, please. How many did your homework for tonight? Let me see your hands. All right, looks like most of you did. You're supposed to have read Revelation 10 for tonight. We're going to study this entire chapter. And I invite you to put a marker here, maybe a quiz envelope or something. We're going to spend much of our evening here in this place of the Bible. Revelation chapter 10. Put a marker here. Revelation 10, verses 1 and 2, John says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, as he's describing what he's seeing here, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, what? Open, keep that in mind. He had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. So John is describing what he sees. He sees this angel, his clothed with a cloud, face like the sun. And he's got a little book open in his hand. Keep that in mind. We're going to discover that that little book is the theme of Revelation 10. 
but he's got one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. What does sea represent in the Bible? Bible prophecy. Sea represents peoples, nations, languages. We saw that from Revelation 17, 15. He's got one foot on the sea, the populated areas of the world, but he's got the other foot on the earth. What's earth represent in prophecy? Sparsely populated areas. So he... He has a message for the sparsely populated areas also. Evidently, this angel has a message for the whole world, the populated areas of the world and the unpopulated areas of the world, a message that goes to the whole world. And evidently, the message must have something to do with this little book that's open in the angel's hand. Well, let's read on the picture that's given here. Revelation 10, verses 3 and 4. And cried, this is the angel, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Question, what did those seven thunders say? <laughs> we can spend the rest of our evening speculating about what those seven thunders said. And when we got all done, we still wouldn't know. Evidently, whatever those seven thunders said was not to be known until after the events of Revelation 10 had been fulfilled. So we're certainly not going to speculate on what those seven thunders must have said. That's not the key point here in our study. Let's read on, though. Verse 5 says, The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. This is sort of be like he's taking an oath or swearing. In fact, notice verse 6. And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So the angel under solemn oath, he pronounces the message that there would be what? Time no longer. And evidently this message goes to the whole world. It's pronounced under solemn oath, time no longer. And apparently the message must have something to do with a little book that's open in the angel's hand, because the Bible says he had a little book that's open. The message then that goes to the whole world is that there would be time no longer. The mystery of God would be finished. That's the next verse, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Well, of course, the question for us tonight is, what does this message mean, time no longer? What does this message mean? And what time period is, referred to, is this referring to when the angel proclaims there will be time no longer? And what's that little book that's opened that must relate to this message that there would be time no longer? Well, we're going to study all that in our presentation tonight. Let's read the next verse, though, verse 8. Revelation 10, verse 8 says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Let's mark down some of the features of this book. First of all, it's a little book. Secondly, it's an open book. That implies it have one book. Now it's open. A little book, an open book, and it must have something to do with time prophecy because the angel proclaims under solemn oath that there would be... Time no longer. Well, the question, of course, for us is, what book is this? A little book, an open book, and a book that deals with time prophecy. We know that there are certain books in the Bible that deal with time prophecy. Revelation is one of those. But John, when he's receiving the vision of Revelation chapter 10, he hasn't yet read or written the book of Revelation. It's not been written yet. What other little book 
in the Bible deals with time prophecies. The book of Daniel and Revelation said that this little book would be open. And that implies it must at one point have been closed. Well, question, was Daniel at one point a closed book? Let's go back to Daniel. Leave a marker here in Revelation 10. We're going to go back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. And we're going to discover that there was only one little prophetic book in the Bible that was at one point closed. And that's the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, and we'll read verse 4. If you're taking notes, put down verse 4 and verse 9. We'll read both of them. Daniel chapter 12, verse, verse 4. The angel tells Daniel, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Book of Daniel. Two, or even two. Go down to verse 9. Daniel 12, verse 9. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are what? Closed up and sealed till when? Till the time of the end. Daniel was at one point a closed book. Consider the parallels between Daniel 12 and Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to give you this particular slide in a handout tonight, so you'll have all this. In Daniel 12, we have Daniel, a sealed book in verse 9. Daniel 12, verse 9. Revelation 10, verse 2, we have an unsealed book. Daniel 12, verse 5, by a body of water. Revelation 10, verse 2, by a body of water. See the parallels? All sorts of parallels between Daniel 12 and Revelation 10. Daniel 12, verse 7, a solemn oath. Revelation 10, verse 6, a solemn oath. Daniel 12, verses 7, 11, and 12, we have prophecies. Revelation 10, verse 6, we have time prophecies. Daniel 12, verse 9, time of the end. Revelation 10, verse 6, time no longer. Revelation 10, verse 11, we have an appointment. Daniel is a closed book. You're going to get this slide in your handout tonight. Oh, hand of the angel, little angel. So evidently then, it's a sealed book. What's the time would it be opened? And the angel said that Daniel would be opened. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. I hope you left a marker in Revelation. Revelation 10, verses 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book. What book is this? Book of Daniel. Go take the little book, which is... Show me the little book. What book is... Let me take it. It's me. And I took the little book. What book is this? Book of Daniel. I took the little book out of the angel symbolism, showing in figurative... To be open when? Time of the end. He was showing the experience of God's people at end time as they studied the book of Daniel. It would be sweet in the mouth, but would turn to bitterness in the belly. Let me ask you, did you ever eat something that was really sweet, that made you sick? Years ago, I was doing a mission project in Santo Domingo, or Dominican Republic, rather. Went down as a, on a building project, myself and another young man. I had, hadn't been married too long. We had, a, we had a little baby girl back then. This is many years ago. And I went down with this other fellow for a building project. We were going to build a, a staff house on a mission compound down there in Dominican Republic. And we spent a month there building on this project. And after we had spent our time there, we were getting ready to go back home, and we'd come to Santo Domingo, the capital, to fly out the next day. And the brethren there, they wanted to, to thank us for our hard work. And so they took us out that evening to a restaurant. And they ordered us papaya milkshakes. And I had heard about, I had tasted, I had heard about papaya milks. I had tasted them, and I knew how good they were. And so I ordered the biggest papaya milkshake that you can order. And my buddy... He did the same thing. You know, it's hot down in Dominican Republic, and so this is very refreshing. It's a great big papaya milkshake. 
So I ordered one, my buddy ordered his, and we enjoyed every sip. Of, I don't know if you've ever had papaya milkshake. They are delicious. And I enjoyed every sip of that cool papaya milkshake on that hot evening there in Santa Domingo. But it wasn't too long after I'd finished my papaya milkshake, something began to feel funny down here in the midsection. And by the time we got back to our hotel, our motel room that night, my buddy and I, we were both sick. I mean, really sick. We were vomiting. We had diarrhea. I mean, I, I don't think we slept at all that night between the toilet and the sink. All night long, we were taking turns. It was an awful night. I didn't know if I was going to make it out of Santo Domingo to come back home the next day. I was never been so sick. It was sweet in the mouth. Oh, but it sure made me sick when it hit the belly. And so here, the prophecy predicts that this little book, little book of Daniel, would be sweet in the mouth, but would turn to bitterness in the belly. Now, let me ask you, did you, what does it mean to eat up a book? John was going to eat this little book. We know the little book, that's Daniel. What's it mean to eat a book? Did you ever devour a book? Well, let's get a cross-reference. Come with me to Jeremiah. Leave a finger in Revelation. Let's go back to Jeremiah 15, 16. I'm sure at some point you devoured a book. Not, not with your teeth, of course. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. The Bible says, Thy words were found, and I did, what? Eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Eating or feeding upon the word of God. What's Jesus say in Matthew 4, 4? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by... Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we're supposed to feed upon the word of God. So evidently then, to eat the little book means that Daniel would be studied diligently. Now, of course, John, we understand John is he's symbolizing all this. Daniel would be open at what time? Time of the end. So John is symbolically showing in this experience, the, the experience of God's people at the time of the end, as they studied the book of Daniel, it would be sweet in the mouth, but would turn to what? Bitterness in the belly. Now, we understand this is talking about the time prophecies of Daniel. The stories of Daniel have never been closed up. The time prophecies of Daniel would be closed up until when? Until the time of the end. And then as God's people in the time of the end, as they studied the time prophecies of Daniel, they would have great joy at first, which would turn to bitter sorrow. Sweet in the mouth, bitter in the belly. Now we know that Daniel and Revelation both have time prophecies. Revelation had not been written when we were studying Revelation 10. John hadn't written the book yet. So we know we're focusing on the little book of Daniel. The time prophecies of Daniel, we've studied some of them. The 1260 years, you find that in Daniel. You also find it in Revelation. But there is another prophecy in Daniel. In fact, the longest time prophecy in the Bible is found in the book of Daniel. Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. We looked at that already in our seminar. We calculated that. We saw that it started in 457 and ended in 1844. And Revelation 10 says that there would be time no longer. The mystery of God would be finished. And we understand that from Daniel, the longest time prophecy brings us down to 1844. And then the angel said there would be no time no longer bring us down to the time of the end, as it were. And as they would study this longest prophecy in Daniel, it would first be sweet in the mouth, but would turn to bitterness in the belly. 
What was it about the time prophecy of Daniel 8.14 that led first to great joy but ended in bitter sorrow? Well, let's go back and consider what was happening in the early 1800s. We understand that in 1798, the 1260 years of papal rule came to an end. The Pope was taken into exile, died in exile. Freedom, largely speaking, came to the world. The Bible societies were established. Bibles became available to the common people. And as people around the world began studying the Bible, many of them concluded that Christ's coming was near, largely from the time prophecies of the little book of Daniel, especially the one about the 2,300 days or years. They were studying Daniel. It was open now, time of the end. And as they studied that, they thought, they thought Christ's coming was near. That was, of course, a sweet experience for them. Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727, he said this, quote, About the time of the end, when? When was Daniel supposed to be opened? Time of the end. That's what the angel told Daniel. About the time of the end, the body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies. So Newton predicted that the time of the end, people would focus in upon the prophecies of the book of Daniel. Well, question, when is the time of the end? Time of the end began after 1798. From 1798 until Christ's return is the time period referred to in the Bible as the time of the end. Now you say, well, pastor, 1798, that was a long time ago. Well, actually, not so long ago. Depends on your perspective. Let me show you this great clock of time. I got this from a scholar. And by the way, we're going to give you this particular slide also in your handout. You'll get this, so you'll have this for your reference. We have the clock... 12 hours, 6,000 equaling 6,000 years. We understand that sin has gone on about 6,000 years upon this world. Each hour is 500 years. Each minute is 100 years. So we'll start over here at the zenith of Earth's history, creation. You come down to 2 o'clock, and we've just passed the death of Adam, 300, 930 years. You come down to 3 o'clock, and we are at the time of Noah. Here we are, a 1,500 years after creation, you come down to 2,000 years after creation. We're at the time of Abraham. You come down 2,500 years after creation. We come to the Exodus. 3,000 years after creation, we're at the time of David. Here we are, 6 o'clock on our clock, halfway through the 6,000 years. We're only at the time of David. You come to 7 o'clock, you're at the time of Daniel. 8 o'clock, 4,000 years after creation, we've come to the time of Christ. And by the way, if you have the book Desire of Ages, you can read on page 32 about the great clock of time. I'm looking at it here. You come down to 9 o'clock, and we are at the time of the papal system, 500 A.D. Come to 10 o'clock, we're at the Dark Ages, 1000 A.D. You come to 11 o'clock, we're at the time of the Reformation, 1500 A.D. See where we are? We come all the way down to 11 o'clock. Now you come to 1798, you see where that is? Right there. Well, that's the time of the end. Can you see when you look at it from the entire perspective of the 6,000 years on this planet how indeed it is the time of the end from 1798 until Christ's return? Just a short period when you look at it in the entire span of time. And then 1844 is when judgment began shortly after that. And where are we today? Well, we are just seconds, if you please, before Christ's return. We know that we're very near the end. And I'll give you this particular slide so you have this. So about the time of the end, or after 1798, because that's when the time of the end started, that's when Daniel was open, people began to understand the prophecies of Daniel. About the time of the end, Sir Isaac Newton said, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies. And that is exactly what happened. After 1798, people began studying the book of Daniel. In America, in 1818, 
William Miller, a recent convert to Christianity, came to the shocking conclusion that Jesus Christ would personally and visibly return to earth to set up his eternal kingdom in about 25 years, or 1843. That was his first calculation. That conclusion filled William Miller with both joy and uneasiness. Well, how did he come to that conclusion? From studying what book? The book of Daniel. Go thy way, Daniel 12, verse 9, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until when? Until the time of the end. When the time of the end begin? 1798. So after 1798, now people began focusing their attention on the time process of Daniel. And as they studied Daniel, they said, Jesus is coming back, especially as they considered that prophecy of the 2,300 years that brings us down to 1844. Well, that was America. Let's go to England now. This is Edward Irving, an Englishman, came to the conclusion that the prophecies of, of what little book? Book of Daniel pointed to the time of the end. So Christ's return was preached in America, was preached in England. 300 ministers in the Church of England and 600 nonconformist ministers began preaching the second coming. Thomas B. Macaulay, the famous historian, a member of Parliament, recorded in 1844 that the number of those who believed in an imminent return of Christ included men distinguished by rank, wealth, and, and, and ability, noblemen, he added, and members of Parliament have written in defense of it. That was England. So Christ's return was preached in America, was preached in England. Let's go to Germany. Johann Bengel in Germany almost simultaneously came to the same conclusion and became a preacher of the second coming. From studying what little book? The little book of Daniel. It was open now in these early 1800s. People all over the world were studying the book of Daniel. South America. Manuel de la Cunza, a Roman Catholic priest in South America, wrote under the pen name of Juan Josefa Benezra. As this godly man began to study the prophecies, what prophecies? the prophecies of Daniel, pointed the time of the end, he came to believe that Jesus was coming very, very soon. That was preached in America. It was preached in England. It was preached in Germany. It was preached all through South America. Over in the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, the public preaching of the Word of God was outlawed in these countries just after 1800. So what did God do? He inspired child preachers by the hundreds to proclaim the soon coming of Jesus. They would get up and begin to preach. These children, and you could tell that they were preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they preached the message of Christ's return. That was in the Scandinavian countries. Let's go to Asia now. Dr. Joseph Wolf, a Jewish convert to Christianity, believed that Christ was coming in the early 1800s. He became a missionary to the world, traveling throughout Asia, proclaiming the second coming of Jesus. So all over the world, it was preached that Christ's coming was near. In summary, at the end of the 1260 years of Daniel 12, 7, a renewed interest in the second coming of Christ swept America and Europe and was felt in the farthest missionary outposts in Asia and Africa. Many of these fervent people believe the 2,300-day year prophecy of, of what little book? The book of Daniel predicted the return of Jesus. See, now Daniel was open as they studied. They thought Jesus is coming soon. That was what? Sweet to think. Christ coming is near. That was a sweet experience for them as they anticipated that. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel 8, 14. They thought, Christians back then, thought the sanctuary was the earth. 
And so they thought Christ was going to come back and cleanse the earth by fire in 1844. Now, by the way, let me just mention, these were not Seventh-day Adventists. There were no Seventh-day Adventists in 1844. These were Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, people from virtually every church as they studied what little book? The little book of Daniel was open, pointing to 1844. And they thought in 1844 Christ would come back. Here in America, as I mentioned, William Miller was one. William Miller was at first a deist. A deist believes that God sort of wound up the world like a clock and then let it go do its own thing. He was a deist at first. But then he was converted, became a Christian, and he was challenged by his deist friends to prove his faith. And so he, what he did, he began systematically studying the Bible. He put aside all the commentaries. He got the Bible and the concordance. And he would study no farther than it became clear in his mind, very slowly studying through the Bible. Started in Genesis and just went right down through the Bible. When he got to the book of Daniel, he was amazed at how clearly and how accurately the prophecies of Daniel had been fulfilled. He saw the prophecies about the Messiah. The, we looked at Daniel 9 when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem. He saw that, 457 B.C. He traced down the 400 and 83 years to the Messiah's baptism. He saw that. He saw Christ's death in the middle of that last week. And then 34 AD, he saw all that. He saw how it had been fulfilled. And so he concluded that the last date, 1844, would also be fulfilled. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. He thought the sanctuary was the earth. And when he discovered that, he was impressed. Go tell the world. Well, of course, William Miller, he was a farmer. He wasn't a preacher. And that was intimidating to him to think about getting up in front of a group of people and preaching. Scared him. And so for months, in fact, for years, he resisted the conviction that he ought to go tell what he had discovered. And finally, he couldn't get rid of the conviction. Finally, he made a bargain with God. He said, all right, Lord, if you send somebody to my door to invite me to a farmer to preach, I'll go. Of course, he knew that was a pretty good bargain because nobody was going to come ask a farmer to preach. It was within the hour. <laughs> Somebody came knocking at his door. It was a youth from a neighboring farm, and they said that there was a whole group of people that had gathered over this neighboring farm, and they wanted him to come share what he had been discovering from his study of the book of Daniel. William Miller got mad at God for answering his prayer so quickly. He went out into the grove of trees behind his house, and he struggled with God over that issue. Finally, he said, all right, Lord, you... You've answered my prayer, sent me the invitation, I'll go. At his first sermon, 13 entire families, minus two people, were converted and accept the Advent, accepted the Advent message. He began a ministry, William Miller, that spanned from 1831 to 1844. He traveled all over America preaching that Christ's coming was near from the prophecy of Daniel 8.14. See, he thought... This world was a sanctuary which would be cleansed by fire in 1844 when Christ came back. That was his conclusion. And of course, people all over America agreed with him. This is from the book Tell It to the World by C.M. Maxwell. It says, quote, Hearts were filled with joy and holy excitement as thousands took their stand for Jesus. Through the preaching of one of the Advent preachers, William Miller, the Methodist churches gained 40,000 new members and the Baptists 45,000. Can you imagine winning 85,000 people to the Lord? That was one preacher, William Miller. And by the way, William Miller was a Baptist. He was actually ordained as a Baptist minister. So don't blame the Adventists for 1844. This was long before Adventists came into being. 
They called them Adventists because they were teaching the Advent. They also called them Millerites because they were following William Miller, who was a Baptist minister. Somebody wrote in a resignation along about this time, this era, said, Dear Sir, enclosed is my commission as Justice of the Peace, which I have no further use for, believing as I do beyond a doubt that the Lord is coming on the 10th day, that's October 22, of the 7th Jewish Sacred Month, 1844. I believe the Lord will come on this 7th month of this sacred year. Therefore, I do not wish to remain Justice of the Peace any longer. End of quote. That was from William S. Hershey. He resigned because he believed Christ was coming. The Advent Herald, which was a magazine published back then, shortly before 1844, they, they, they said this, quote, As the date of the present number of the Herald is our last date of publication before the 10th day of the 7th month, that would be October 22, we shall make no provision for issuing a paper for the week following, end of quote. Why not? They didn't think they'd be here. The Lord's coming back, so we're going to be out of here. We don't need to plan for a paper next week. All right, here's another statement. This is from a Newburyport shop owner who said, quote, Believing as I most sincerely do that the Lord Jesus will come in a few days, will in a few days come in the clouds of heaven, I retire from this shop. As I am determined, God being my helper, that my works shall correspond with my faith. End of quote. I'm closing my business because the Lord's coming in just a few days. Well, I'm, I'm going to prepare for that event. Somebody took out a front page advertisement in the Providence, Providence Journal. Says this, quote, If I owe anybody any money as a result of my business dealings, and if I've not been faithful in paying it, please let me know so I can pay my debts, because Jesus is coming on October 22, 1844, and I want to ascend in the cloud and go with him, end of quote. These were believers from every church all over the world that thought Christ's coming was 1844, October 22, 1844. As a result of their study of Daniel's prophecies, these people believed that Christ would return on October 22, 1844, the end of the 2300-year prophecy of Daniel 8:14, and after the end of the 1335-year prophecy of Daniel 12:12. 12, 12. By the way, I'm going to give you a handout with that prophecy as well. How sweet the message of Christ's return was to these sincere people. Thousands had accepted Christ and given up all to follow him. Some farmers left their crops in the field. They believed Christ was coming back. They gave up everything for that. Was that a sweet experience for them? Oh, yes, as they came up to it, it was a, I mean, if you were separated from somebody that you love, wouldn't it be sweet to anticipate their return, their coming to meet you? Of course. And these people, they were in love with Jesus. And so as they anticipated Christ's coming, that was a sweet experience. I've often thought what the experience must have been like for those people. They had no unconfessed sins remaining in their lives. Every thought, every action they carefully examined to make sure they were completely committed to Jesus. There was no jealousy between them. There was no animosity between believers. They'd put away all pride, all selfishness. Every day they would begin the day by searching their hearts to make sure they were surrendered in every thought, in every area, completely to Jesus. And so they came up to the experience. They came up to that date that was a sweet experience. None of us will understand how sweet it was because we didn't go through the experience they went through, putting away every sin in our lives. Well, this, that was a sweet experience, but the prediction from Daniel, Revelation 10 was it would turn to what? Turn to bitterness. Sweet in the mouth, it would become bitter in the belly, and that is exactly what happened. 
Jesus did not come back as they thought he would in 1844. And when Jesus didn't come back, how bitter was it? Very bitter. Turn to bitterness. All right, we looked at the sweet part. Let's turn to the bitter part, bitter disappointment. This is one of the Advent believers, Henry Emmons. He said, quote, I waited all Tuesday, October 22, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. My natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. End of quote. It was a bitter disappointment for those believers. Here's another one. This is from Hiram Edson, another one of the believers. He said, quote, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I had never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept until the day dawned. We won't understand how bitter that dis disappointment was because we didn't go through the experience that they went through, but it was a very bitter disappointment. <clears throat> had the Bible predicted it? Oh, yes. Revelation 10 predicted as they would feed upon the little book of Daniel, it would be sweet in the mouth at first, the process of Daniel, but then it would turn to great sorrow. It would be a bitter disappointment, and that is exactly what happened to those, those believers. How did those people who were from many different denominations, many different churches, how did they respond when Jesus did not return as they expected? Well, several ways. There were several responses to the bitter disappointment. Some gave up religion entirely. They became atheists or skeptics. Others set new dates for the advent. Of course, date setting has accomplished nothing. Most churches gave up the study of prophecy. You begin to see why many churches today won't study prophecy. Every church that was in existence back then, that exists today, went through the experience of the disappointment. They all went through that. Those churches that exist today, that were existing back then, they went through the disappointment. They said, well, we just don't understand prophecy. So we're no longer going to study it. Obviously, we missed something in 1844. S small numbers, though, began searching their Bibles again. Some of those Advent believers, they began searching their Bibles again to find out why. Where was our misunderstanding? As these disappointed people searched their Bibles, what did they discover? Two things. First of all, they discovered that there was nothing wrong with their dates. They could find no miscalculation in all their calculations. They also discovered that the disciples had been disappointed. In fact, come with me to Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 21. And you can just hear the disappointment in the voices of these disciples. In Luke 20, did I say 21? Luke 24, 21. Luke 24, verse 21 says, But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Can't you hear the disappointment in their voices? We thought that Jesus was the Messiah, and then he died. How disappointing. Well, think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, was he fulfilling prophecy? Oh, yes. But the very fulfillment of prophecy was for his disciples what? A bitter disappointment. The very event that fulfilled prophecy was for the disciples a bitter disappointment. Amazing. In 31 AD, when Christ died on the cross, prophecy was being fulfilled. But for Christ's followers, it was a bitter disappointment. In 1844, again, prophecy was being fulfilled. But for Christ's followers, it was a Bitter disappointment. See the parallel? It's amazing, the parallels here. 
What really happened in 1844? Of course, we know Jesus did not come back. What happened in 1844? Daniel 8:14 unto 2,300 days. We calculated this. It does end in 1844. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. See, they thought the sanctuary was the earth. What is it? There's no evidence in the Bible the sanctuary is the earth. As they studied the sanctuary, they discovered that the sanctuary actually is where? They saw the sanctuary in heaven. Let me just tell you what happened. This is the day after October 22. The next morning, Hiram Edson and some other believers, they went out to the barn there, a barn, to pray, to seek the Lord for some consolation, some comfort, some direction. And as they were in prayer, this small group of Advent believers with higher medicine there, <clears throat> they felt impressed that somehow God was going to explain their misunderstanding. They felt a sense of peace. So higher medicine and another brother, they set out across the cornfield to visit believers, other Advent believers in a neighboring farm. They went by the way of the cornfield rather than by the way of the road. Can you guess why? <laughs> they didn't want to meet anybody. I said, oh, I thought you were going up yesterday. Well, it looks like you're still here. Oh, so they didn't want to meet anyway. So they cut across the cornfield to avoid meeting anybody. And as they were walking across the cornfield, these two brothers, Hiram Edson, he kind of began lagging behind. He was in deep thought. And he said later, it was just as if a hand was laid upon his shoulder. And it was just as if he heard a voice from heaven say, the sanctuary to be cleansed is in heaven. And as he began thinking about it, it was just as if he could look up into heaven and realize that Jesus was, he began the work of cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. Well, when his friend, the other brother, got to the end of the cornfield, he realized that Hiram Edson wasn't with him. So he turned around and said, Hiram, what's happened? Are you coming? And Hiram called back to the brother. He said, God is answering our prayer of this morning. And when Hiram Edson caught up with the other brother, this is what he said, quote, my mind is carried to the 10th and 11th chapters of Revelation. We've just been looking at the 10th Revelation 10. The 10th and 11th chapters of Revelation where John was told to take a little book from the angel's hand and eat it. It tasted like honey in his mouth, but when he had eaten it, it was as bitter as gall. That is our experience, brother. Was it not sweet to believe that Jesus was coming yesterday? But now it is bitter, very bitter. The sanctuary I saw is in heaven, and Jesus, Jesus entered yesterday upon his work of cleansing it, end of quote. So they began to realize the sanctuary to be cleansed was not this earth by fire, but rather it was the heavenly sanctuary that would be cleansed. We saw that there was an earthly sanctuary, which is a miniature type of the heavenly sanctuary. We saw the earthly sanctuary had a two-phase ministry, a daily service and a yearly service. That means there's a two-phase ministry in what other sanctuary? The heavenly, because the earthly was a copy of the heavenly. Two-phase ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, let me just mention right here, when Jesus was officiating in the holy place, first apartment in the heavenly sanctuary, he was still in God's presence. If you want some text to prove that, put down Revelation 4, 1 to 5, Revelation 8, verse 3. That's sort of a theological question or issue. But there is evidence from the Bible that when Jesus was in the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, he was still in God's presence. We can see that from the Bible. You may remember when we studied about the sanctuary, all year long the record of the forgiven sins had gone into the earthly sanctuary, were sprinkled there before the veil. 
a record of the forgiven sins was recorded in the sanctuary in the sprinkled blood. Once a year, they had a cleansing of the sanctuary when they would cleanse that record. It was called the yearly service or the day of judgment or the day of atonement, of course. What was cleansed out on that day? The record of the forgiven sins was removed. Of course, symbolizing what God does in the heavenly sanctuary at end time. Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, the angel said, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, or in other words, then shall the judgment begin. When? What date? 1844. Which sanctuary? Heavenly sanctuary. And they began to recognize this, these Advent believers, as they studied the sanctuary. They studied, they saw their dates were correct. The Advent believers began to realize that in 1844, Jesus moved from the holy place into the most holy place to begin the work of judgment. The second phase of his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. You see, when Jesus comes back, Revelation 22, verse 12, says he brings rewards for how many people? Every person. In order for Christ to bring a reward for every person, there has to be a judgment first to determine what rewards to bring everybody. There has to be a pre-advent judgment then to determine the rewards. And that judgment, we are, we've discovered already, began in 1844. It's been going down now several, well, quite a few years. Some point, it will cross over to the living because when Christ comes back, he brings our rewards as well. So from his ascension... To 1844, Jesus officiated in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. From 1844 to the close of probation, Christ officiates in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Two-phase ministry in the heavenly sanctuary as well. So now we know what happened in 1844. What happened? The judgment began in 1844. Jesus, of course, we know Jesus didn't come back then. The judgment began in 1844. And that is why Revelation 14, 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. We found out that began then in 1844. What's amazing, in 31 AD when Christ died on the cross, that was for Christ's followers a bitter disappointment. But in God's plan, that was a... Divine appointment. In 1844, for Christ's followers, again, it was a bitter disappointment. But in God's plan, that was another divine appointment. From disappointment to divine appointment. I want you to notice the parallels between the New Testament church and God's true church at end time. New Testament church. In 31 AD, the disciples thought Christ would establish his kingdom on earth. They were bitterly disappointed. After his crucifixion, Jesus went to heaven to begin his work as high priest. The attention of the disciples was directed to Christ's work in heaven. Now parallel that with the remnant church, God's true church at end time. In 1844, Christ's followers thought Christ would establish his kingdom. They were bitterly disappointed. Their attention again was directed to the heavenly sanctuary where Christ had begun his work of cleansing the sanctuary, the work of judgment. See the parallel? between the New Testament church and God's true church at end time. New Testament church was born out of a disappointment at the beginning of Christ's work of ministry in the heavenly place, in the holy place. Compare that with the remnant church, God's true church at end time. Christ's remnant church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, was born again out of a disappointment at the beginning of the work of judgment in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. See the parallel? Both 
churches were born out of a disappointment. The New Testament church and God's true church at end time, the Seventh-day Adventist church, both born out of a disappointment. One at the beginning of Christ's work in the first department, the other at the beginning of Christ's work in the second department. Let's go back now to Revelation 10, verse 10. And we'll read this with new understanding. Revelation 10, verse 10. John says, I took the little book. What book is this? Book of Daniel. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. He's symbolizing the experience of God's people at end time as they would eat up the book of Daniel. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And now we can see that is exactly what happened. First, a sweet experience which turned to bitterness. Great joy that ended in bitter sorrow. That's what happened to those Advent believers. Was this movement based on the prophecies of Daniel to just die out when Christ didn't come back? Was it just going to fizzle when Jesus didn't return? Let's read verse 11 now. Same chapter, Revelation 10, verse 11. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Of course, John is symbolizing the experience of God's people. God's people were to prophesy again, not to die out. They were to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Compare that with the next verse. The very next verse in your Bible, Revelation 11, verse 1 says, And there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel said, stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. Rise. Get your focus off this world. Today, most Christians, or many Christians, are looking for a Rebuilt temple where? Over in Jerusalem. And the angel is saying, rise, get your focus off this world. The temple in this world is, has no significance. It was destroyed by the Romans. The attention now is supposed to be fixed on which temple? The heavenly temple. Rise, it says. Get your focus on the heavenly temple. Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary. Mark this. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church that knows what Jesus is doing in heaven today. You ask most Christians, what's Jesus doing in heaven? It's like, well, I don't know. I guess he's waiting to come back. Seventh-day Adventists understand what he's doing in heaven. He's, he's going through the work of judgment, determining the, the rewards of people. And when every reward has been determined, every case has been decided, then what happens? Then he comes back and brings his rewards there are some people that think that 1844 is sort of like a black mark on the Seventh-day Adventist church. Well, I want you to consider two things. First of all, the Seventh-day Adventists did not set the date 1844. So if you want to blame some church for 1844, go blame the Baptists, because it was William Miller who was a Baptist minister who said 1844. Don't blame the Adventists for that, because there were no Seventh-day Adventists in 1844. But secondly, if the Seventh-day Adventists could not trace their heritage back to 1844, they would not be the true church. Because God's true church, we've just discovered from Revelation 10, was to grow, go through the experience of 1844, the bitter disappointment. So God's church, 1844, is another evidence that this is God's true church. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church that can make any sense out of what happened in 1844, every church today that was in existence in 1844 went through the experience. That can be documented in church history in every church. And they say, we don't know what happened. It was a big mistake. Only the Seventh-day Adventists understand what really happened then. Jesus began his work in heaven. Now, I should just mention something else in passing here. 
SDA, that means Seventh-day Adventist. It does not mean LDS. You know the difference? <laughs> LDS, that's Latter-day Saints. I know people are always confusing Seventh-day Adventists with the Mormons or with the Jehovah's Witness. They say, oh, Seventh-day Adventists? Oh, you don't believe in Jesus, do you? They're confusing us with the, with the Jehovah's Witness who do not accept that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's not God. They say, well, he's just sort of a created being. So SDA, that does not mean Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness. That simply means Seventh-day Adventist. It's an abbreviation there. Seventh-day Adventists understand that in 1844, the day of judgment began. Let's read Revelation 11, verse 18 here. Drop on down in chapter 11 to verse 18. It says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be what? Judged. See the judgment here. The time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. So you can see the judgment pictured there. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel 8, verse 14. We have calculated that. We know that that ended in 1844. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only church that understands that in 1844, judgment began in heaven. Christ comes back when the judgment is finished, bringing his rewards for every person. Let's read the next verse now, Revelation 11, verse 19. It says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the what? The ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. The ark of his testament. Who can tell me what is inside the ark? The Ten Commandments. As these Advent believers that had come out from all these different churches in the 1844 experience, as they began studying the sanctuary, they saw there the ark. And inside the ark, they discovered God's law. And as they studied God's law, they said, oh, you know, there's a commandment we're not keeping. We're only keeping nine of the Ten Commandments. What about the Sabbath? God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath. The Lord thy God, that group of people that came through the experience of 1844 began observing the seventh day Sabbath. The group that went through the experience of Revelation 10, the, the, the disappointment, that group rediscovered the Bible Sabbath and began proclaiming it to the world. Something else God's church has, Revelation 12, 17, keep the commandments, yes, and have what else? The testimony of Jesus, which is, which is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10 tells us. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So God's church would have the spirit of prophecy. The remnant church, this group that grew out of the disappointment of 1844, would have beliefs that include, first of all, an understanding of Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary, the work of judgment. Number two, the true Bible Sabbath. And number three, the gift of prophecy which we believe was manifest in the ministry of Ellen G. White. And if you've been coming to our seminars, we've studied about Ellen White already in our lectures. The gift of prophecy. Let's compare two verses now from Revelation. Revelation 10, verse 11, and Revelation 14, verse 6. Revelation 10, verse 11 says, He said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So the group that went through this experience was to prophesy before the world. Well, compare that with Revelation 14, verse 6. Revelation 14, 6 says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. See the parallel? 
So the people that went through the experience of Revelation 10, they're supposed to carry the everlasting gospel of the world. What's the gospel? These three angels' messages. Verse 7, here's the message. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. When did it start? 1844. We've established that. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Verse 8, this is another message that God's people carry to the world. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. God's true church is identifying who Babylon is and calling people to come out of Babylon, Revelation 18.4, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. We found out Babylon is the mother church. And all of her daughters, all the other commandment-breaking churches. Verses 9 and 10, the third message that also God's church carries at end time. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The group that came through the experience of Revelation 10 is supposed to carry this message to the whole world as well. So mark this. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church preaching the threefold message of Revelation 14 and that has the characteristics of Revelation 12 and was born out of the experience of Revelation 10. There is only one church in existence today that fits all three of those. Preaching the threefold message of Revelation 14 and that has the characteristics of Revelation 12, keeping the commandments and having the spirit of prophecy, testimony of Jesus, and that was born out of the experience of Revelation 10. So, yes, we can have certainty that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church. You've been wondering about that. Revelation 10 is given that we might have certainty that, yes, this is God's true church. The only church preaching the threefold message of Revelation 14 and that has the characteristics of Revelation 12 and that was born out of the experience of Revelation 10. And my friend, God wants you to be a part of his true church, his people at end time. I want to mention something else tonight <clears throat> relating to Revelation 10. The message by the angel proclaimed under solemn oath would be that there would be what? Time no longer. Revelation chapter 10, verse 6. The longest time prophecy ended in 1844. And the angel said under solemn oath that after that there would be time no longer. So there are no more prophetic points where you have a starting date and an ending date after 1844, according to the Bible. Now, there are people today that are reapplying some of the prophecies of the Bible. They're trying to predict things for the future. They are some of some, in fact, there are even some Seventh-day Adventists. They're reapplying the prophecies of Daniel, the 1260 days, the 1290 days, the 1335 days. They're trying to reapply it to later. The angel says under solemn oath there would be what? Time no longer after 1844. And that you can find reinforced in the writings of Ellen White. This is from the book Last Day Events, page 36, which says, quote, After this period of time, Revelation 10, 4-6, reaching from 1842 to 1844, there can be no definite tracing of the prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. 
End of quote. So after 1844, there will be no more prophetic dates with a starting point and an ending point. That's what the Bible's telling us here. Here's from another uh, book that she wrote, Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 188, which says, quote, Should we advance in spiritual knowledge, we would see the truth developing and expanding in lines of which we have little dreamed. But it will never develop in any line that will lead us to imagine that we may know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Again and again have I been warned in regard to time setting. There will never again be a message for the people of God that will be based on time. Because the angel said in Revelation 10 there would be time no longer. No more time dates. Starting point and an ending point. We, have, we are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. End of quote. What does Jesus say? No one knows the, the day or the hour. No more time. Time no longer. Now I want to clarify, this is referring to prophetic time. We can know when Christ's coming is near, can't we? Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verses 32 and 3, when you see all the signs, know that my coming is, is near. Can't set dates. But we can know when Christ's coming is near. Jesus says that. Time no longer. Now, again, this is time prophecy. There would be no more time prophecies. Are there other prophecies that yet must be fulfilled? Yes, there's the Sunday Law, there's the seven last plagues, there are other prophecies that yet must be fulfilled, but when it comes to time prophecies with a starting point and an ending point, what's the message, Revelation 10? There would be time no longer, no more prophetic time periods after 1844. I wanted to clarify that from our study of Revelation 10. But in review, the Seventh-day Adventist church today is the only church preaching the threefold message of Revelation 14 and that was, has the characteristics of Revelation 12 and was born out of the experience of Revelation 10. So yes, friend, we can have confidence. God has a church today. And Jesus tells us in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Sets us free from all these man-made traditions and teachings. God has a true church. Yes, we can be certain that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church at end time. Does that mean that everybody else is lost? Of course not. Does that mean that all Seventh-day Adventists will be saved? Not, a, not at all. But God does have a true church that lines up with the prophecies of the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, Revelation 12, and Revelation 10. And that's why God has brought you here. He wants you to be a part of his true church at end time. And I'm so happy for those of you that have made that commitment. I want to follow Jesus, don't you? How many want to follow Jesus? Let me see your hands. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.